Hello, and welcome to the She's Heard podcast. My name is Emily Jennings, and you found the place where extraordinary everyday people from different professions and walks of life share about how they found their voice and are using it to speak up and create meaningful change. Today, I'm speaking with sacred rebel, courage, and authenticity coach, Debbie Burns. Debbie is the best-selling author of The Path to Courage. She's been described as a Molotov cocktail in Hello Kitty packaging, dropping glitter truth bombs on a mission to help us believe in ourselves so strongly that the world can't help but believe in us too. Deb's navigated trauma has weaved hardened truth into commercial fiction and is now coaching visionary women and artists to wake up and create meaningful impact through their work. She blends personal development principles with energy, intuition, and a whole lot of love to help build courage to be seen on the journey of expression, personal freedom, leadership, and belonging. In this episode, Deb pulls back the curtain on her personal journey of traversing PTSD and suicide. She shares the process of unraveling relationships based in contractual expectations versus authentic belonging. She shares about doing the deeper work of creating and living by her own set of rules. Her commitment to a deeper love of self and an immovable commitment to living life true to herself is contagious. You can learn more at debbieburns.me and you can find her best-selling book, The Path to Courage, Seven Steps to Follow Your Soul Song and Live Your Happily Epic After on Amazon.com. I'm so excited to share this firecracker of a soul with you today. So without further ado, here's our conversation. Where do you want to start? How far back do you want to go? Oh my goodness, that's a great question. Um, You know, I feel like, we'll just fill this out. I feel like I want to start as a kid, as a little kid. Are you okay with that? Absolutely, yeah. So when I was little, I loved the world. I was so excited to eat it up, experience it, feel it, be a part of it. My grandma likes to tell the story of this time in Disneyland where I was so bored standing in line waiting for whatever was coming next. She goes, you see all these people here? I bet they're bored too. Why don't you do something to entertain them? So she said, I jumped up on a wall and I tapped and I sang and I just did whatever to keep them happy, to keep me happy. It was just excitement. It was just me living as myself. And over time, I feel like family and culture and society kind of snuffed that out. There we start, as we grow up, we start hearing things like act your age, children should be seen and not heard, you know, you're smarter than this, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't. We hear a lot of shoulds and shouldn'ts. And I think that's an important part of my story because along that path, I lost who I was. I felt to be accepted, even in my family, even in the place that I joke sometimes for, maybe I shouldn't say this out loud. I joke sometimes that it would have been nice if Genesis, the Bible had started with and in the beginning families were effed up, right? (laughs) I just, I'm like, that would have been so nice for someone just to say, I mean, it's kind of comes out with the whole Cain and Abel story, but we don't, we don't really say that. So you kind of have this expectation that family can be the place where you can be safe to be a hundred percent yourself, that you will always have that space that you can be you and you can be loved and accepted for that. And I learned really, really quickly that that wasn't the case. Growing up in my home, loudness and noise equated to violence because my father really, really liked things to be quiet and in order. And so even playing outside, if he heard you outside, it could lead to trouble. It could lead to, um, things happening behind closed doors, right? So I I learned quickly that it wasn't safe to be myself, that um, it was easier and and safer to wear the mask or what I call a mask, right? We go out, we are who we are like deep down inside of us. But I think as we get older, we learn to take what other people want for us and we put that on ourselves. And sometimes we wear it so long and so often without ever taking it off that we lose that little girl way back in the beginning who danced on walls and sang in front of people or spoke her mind or enjoyed life or loved without constraint, like all of those things, we lose, we lose her. We don't even know what she looks like or sounds like anymore. Um, 
And so I think that's where my story really began was, was back there of the girl on the wall. (laughs) But I didn't know that growing up. I didn't know that. And so I just kept trying to be what everyone else wanted me to be. I was smart. I was intelligent. I was quiet. I followed the rules or I tried to follow the rules. I, I have stories of like going to church, like at my church, it was really, really important. Like they really pressed upon us the need to show up in appropriate Sunday attire. And I say that with my hands doing little quotes. Um, so I was the girl that I was like, I wore the dress, but in defiance, I also wore the leather jacket and the bunny slippers, right? So that I could be like, I'm, I'm following your rules, but somehow like these pieces of me would like bleed out in all these random ways. And I'm like, why am I doing that? I don't know, but I have to wear the bunny slippers. You know, and then looking back as an adult, I'm like, oh, that was me trying to like, hey, be like, hello, here I am. Like, let's, let's be ourselves. Um, but I did that and I followed the rules and I, I graduated valedictorian at my university. I went on to college because that was what you were supposed to do. I was married by 21 because that was what, like in, in my family and in Where my culture. Where were you? Where, which state were you growing up? I in? was living in, so I was born, I was, well, I spent my first about 12 years of my life outside of Chicago in some suburbs outside of Chicago. Then my parents got divorced and I ended up spending the rest of my growing up years in Utah. So that's where I was, finished high school there, um, went to college there. By the time I was 19, my brother was like, why aren't you married yet? Like you should be married. I'm like, I'm only 19. But so you have like this pressure of like, you've got to be married. So I thought, I thought all these things about myself. I was broken. Anyway, I met this really great guy. We ended up getting married just after my 21st birthday. It's still so young. I know. Like now I'm looking at it. I'm like, what were we thinking? But at the time I was like, I'm, I started feeling like I was getting into old maidhood. Like I'm never going to get married. What's wrong with me? And then when I finally did find someone that I just clicked with and we had, we knew each other 45 days when we got engaged. And the only reason I knew that two things showed up for me, he's so sweet. He's, he's a huge part of my story. But one thing is we were, while we were dating, my dad had called, I think to wish me happy birthday or something. I don't remember. I just know my dad had called for some reason. And when he does that, I have, I have a very complicated and interesting relationship with my dad. I think with any estranged parent, like we want so much for them to be present in the way we need to be present. And at the same time, there's so much heartache and pain and hurt around that relationship. So every time dad called, I would end up crying. Most boyfriends in the past would run away from that and be like, whoa, issues. And Joe takes me out for ice cream afterwards, my favorite ice cream. He reaches across the tables. We're sitting in a Baskin Robbins and I'm trying not to cry. And he just says to me, He says, you can feel and experience anything you want. I only ask one thing, and that's that you don't shut me out, right? And I I had never had someone respond to me in such a way before to be like, don't quiet your voice. Don't hold this back. Don't hide it anymore. Like, let it, let it out. Like, I think that was one of my first memories of permission to be myself, to share um, which is funny because I'm like, I didn't, in our talks beforehand, I'm like, I didn't even remember that one. But that was, that was one of my first of someone outside of me saying, hey, don't, don't keep it in. Just don't, don't give me out. And then the other reason I knew is because after going out with him, like once I, I just had no desire, like zero desire. I even had other dates lined up, went out with one guy, thought about Joe the whole time, canceled that, canceled everything after that because I just, I didn't want to be with anyone else. We were, we met New Year's Eve. We were engaged by Valentine's Day. We were married by June that same year. So, and we've been married now. It's 2018. We've been married 17. It'll be 17 years in June Wow. that we've been married. So, um, but anyway, so I got married like I thought I was supposed to. <laughs> you I found gra- somebody <laughs> who loves like yes partner. Oh, I was so blessed. That so is incredibly blessed. So healthy. Yes. So healthy. How wise of you. (laughs) (laughs) I am very lucky. I'm actually very, I I, I would say that the universe had my back on this because I'm terrible at breaking up with people, especially people who treat me badly. But the universe always made sure that they broke up with me. So all those relationships that I was like, I can make this work. I can make this work. I can figure it out. I can be quieter. I can be, you know, I can be what I'm not so that they'll love me. All of them broke up with me. So <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, God had my back. Thank you. Whatever powers that be, whatever source is out there, 
thank you for having my back. Cause when they brought me Joe, I just feel like, I feel like I hit gold and it doesn't mean that our story isn't rife with right. difficulty and, and almost, um, falling apart, but his willingness to choose back in and my willingness to choose back in, in all of those difficult moments has really made the difference for us in creating a stronger marriage. Like even though what I thought it could be at the beginning when I was like, Oh my gosh, this guy lets me be who I am. He's continued to allow that unfolding. Mm -hmm. Um, because he was willing, he was willing to change as much as he needed to, right? When you both focus on each other, it causes problems. Like you got to fix this and you got to fix that. And we learned actually after the time where we almost got divorced, it was during that, that time of conversation that we learned that we, what we actually needed to do was focus on ourselves. I'll focus on me and how I need to heal and get better. And he chose to focus on himself and how he needed to heal and get better and then both of us chose back into our relationship. Wow. And that was super powerful. It's made all the difference for us. It was essentially like a, a renegotiation or like a second yes. marriage. Or yes, absolutely. Yeah. With both of us coming into it with eyes wide open now, right? Because when you're 21, bless our hearts, we think we're so adulty. We think we got life figured out. And looking back, I'm like, we didn't know anything. We were these little babies getting married who thought we had the, and we didn't, we didn't understand. We didn't even understand ourselves. Yeah. That's let what I was, alone yeah. how to partner with each other. Go yeah. ahead. Um, the, I think that's what is so tricky being in relationship is because humans are dynamic and we evolve and our awareness evolves yes. and our needs evolve. And so to be able to be in partnership with someone where you can be that honest about where you're at and how you're changing. And then as you get clearer about where your boundaries are and what you're willing to give and what you need and all of that, that yes. you can renegotiate and recreate the relationship. That is extraordinary. And it's powerful. It's and it made powerful. like, yeah. it's what led from us living a good life together to living what I call my happily epic after. Ooh, where... I love that. <laughs> <laughs> And that it's a process, not a destination is yeah. what I've learned because I had all these ideas in my mind of what marriage should look like, right? We, we, those get implanted us as we grow up in my religious culture. It was like, you get married, get married, get married, have kids. And then you get married and you find out you can't have kids and you're like, uh, um, so what's next, <laughs> right? You get lost. You get lost. Cause all, all that I feel like family and culture wants to write for us is, Oh, and they lived happily ever after, right? Like, oh, you, you get to this destination and then we're good. You'll be, you'll be fine forever. You'll figure it out. But you get there and 10 years into our marriage, I was like, is this really, is this really what marriage is all about? Like, I don't feel connected. I feel like we're two ships passing in the night. I'm not feeling fulfilled in my relationship because I wanted like a deeper intellectual relationship. You know, things aren't working the way that I want them to be working. And I got to a point where I was like, well, I love him. So yeah, I guess this is marriage and I'll accept that. You know, you get resigned to a relationship. And then at the 12 year mark, after I went through this whole journey of post-traumatic stress disorder, and we can talk about that if you want to, yeah. um, you know, I had this whole falling apart, this kind of resurrection of self, but in coming through that, I wasn't the same person that I was before. I wasn't the quiet woman. I wasn't the girl that held back. I mean, as much as, and it's funny that I say that because people saw me as fiery and opinionated, but I'm like, Oh, they had no idea. <laughs> like that was just little eeks of me, like little things seeping out from this like mask and this facade I was trying to hold. Um, and so when all of that was stripped away from me through the trauma process and it was like, who am I really? Right. That's another moment that stands out to me as I was in, um, I was in a hospital where my husband and I had decided that I would be committed because I had really high suicidality. I'd been having several suicide attempts over the last probably 12 to 18 months. Um, I had a contract with my husband that and I would, how long ago was this? Um, let's see the, the things that happened to me that caused all the fallout. It's been nine years now. Wait, we're we in 2018. Yeah, it's been nine years now when, um, when that happened. So it was about 2009. And then I kind of held it together 
into, wait, I, I'm, I love that it's been so long and I, the healing's been so powerful that it's like, wait, when did that happen again? I think it happened at the end of 2008. So into 2009, May 2009 was my first, my first interaction with, I don't even know how to say that. I'll just say it like it is. Mm -hmm. um, it was the first time I finally pulled a gun from our closet and put it to my head and I couldn't pull the trigger. I felt like I had failed, mm -hmm. right? Because I couldn't pull the trigger. I couldn't bring myself to do that. But I saw how I could. I saw the steps and the practice it would take for me to get to a place where I could easily pull that trigger and be done. And I was, I was fulfilled in that moment. Like if I can, I don't normally tell this part of my story, but the, the feeling of having that cold metal against my temple, the feeling of seeing the steps that I could take to finally pull that trigger felt so delicious to me, almost orgasmic, like emotionally orgasmic in how, how good that felt to to be in a place, oh man, that metal just, it just felt amazing. And I think that just speaks to the pain yep. that I had been going through that in that moment, that would feel so delicious to me because it meant, it meant that I could be done yeah. with trying to hold it together because, so I was held up at a credit union twice within a seven week period. They didn't catch the guy the first time. So he came back again. And um, there was a moment in the first time that after robbing me, he told me he was going to kill me and he put me on the floor. And as I laid there on the carpet with my hands pressing against the rough industrial Berber, we, lit, we were in a credit union that was like in an office complex. So I'm down on the floor and I can hear him closing the door. And in my mind, what I saw was him closing the door and coming back around the counter and murdering me. And in that moment, I only had, I, I was expecting my life to flash before my eyes, but it didn't. I only had three thoughts. Was my life good enough? Does Joe know that I love him? And how do I get my manager out of here without her also coming to harm? Because there was one other person in there, but she wasn't up front with me. She was in the back. So you, you were working there? I was working there. I was okay. working as a teller, as a, it was a mom and pop credit union. So I was all of the above, assistant manager, teller, loan officer, like I just did everything. And so I was out front at the time when he walked in. And so when I, I was the one that stepped to the counter, so I was the one to receive. Um, Whoa, that is intense. Yeah. And so when it didn't happen, you think, okay, everyone's telling you it's like lightning, right? It'll never happen again. The light, you are more likely to get struck by lightning twice than you are to have someone rob you again in your lifetime. Well, seven weeks later, he comes back and does it again. And it just destroyed every ounce of safety. Like every, it, it just like shattered everything. Like I remember coming home from that event and just being like numb to the whole world. I think that was the moment that it just felt like everything in front inside of me shattered. And I just stopped feeling in order to keep the pieces from falling down. Right. You're walking around all cracked and you're like, if I move, any which way, all of that's going to come crashing down. So I just held. And then I was expected to go back to work. Mm -hmm. And so I showed up because that's what was expected of me. And I went day after day driving to this credit union where in the car every day I was experiencing panic attacks and anxiety and just terror about what was going to happen in there. We tried moving my office. We tried installing cameras. Then I got like insanely like fixated on these cameras. And anytime I saw anyone walking by, I was terrified and that lasted. So it was the fall, October 16th. And then um, November something like 7th when those two things happened. And it wasn't until May that I finally left the credit union because I was like, I just can't anymore. And it was that same time it was, I quit and I was at home by myself. And that's when I finally was willing to get the gun out of the closet because I'd spent the last six months just trying to survive, just trying to. And then through all of that, um, the trauma reached back into early trauma in my life, the violence with my father. Um, I finally remembered being um, molested by a friend's father, right? Like it, it had always been there in the background, but something about that interchange and him like closing the door, all of a sudden I started, and it was the weirdest thing. Oh my gosh, I'm 
where like I'm, I'm driving and I'm seeing this thing in the credit union and then I'm seeing this other thing laid on top of it. And it just took so much work to try and separate and be like, what is happening? But, um, but so all this stuff started coming up inside of me and you're just like, what do I do? And I can't please everybody. My manager who also happened to be Joe's mom was angry that I left the credit union and felt like I had abandoned her. There were some accusations thrown around that I was manipulating the system for my, for my benefit. Um, my families were like, why aren't you getting better? What's going, like everybody just wants you to be better. They want you to move past it. You, you, didn't, you didn't actually get hurt, again in quotes. You know, those things are said. And so it's just like, well, what's the point? Yeah. Why don't I just be yeah. done? Like the yeah. pain gets so high and the numbness is so great that even like the words, like I didn't even know what love meant anymore. Like someone say, I love you. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. I can't feel it. It's just like, okay, that's nice. That's a good word. So I wasn't able to kill myself that night. I felt like a failure. Like if I was actually worth anything, I could have pulled that trigger. Unfortunately, I can't keep anything from my husband. So he walks in that night. I'm like, I'm not going to tell him. I'm not going to tell him. I'm not going to tell him. And then I was like, so I pulled a gun out of our closet tonight and put it to my head. Obviously, I couldn't pull the trigger, but I just thought you should know. Bless his heart. He used to sit next to me and he goes, okay, can I ask you some questions? Oh I said, sure, you can ask me some questions. And he goes, okay, so why do you feel like you needed to do that? So we talked yeah. about that a little bit. And then yeah. he was like, do you think you can promise never to do that again? Can we make that contract with each other? And I was like, I can promise to tell you. Like that's something I, I will prom I will call and tell you before I take any action. That's my promise to you. So he's like, okay, let's just, we'll work off of that. And I am so grateful for his calmness in that moment. Again, another moment of someone saying, it's okay. It's okay for you to be honest. It's okay for you to speak up. It's okay for you. And, and I'm not going to freak out like anyone else on the planet, I think would have had to come apart right there. Mm -hmm. Um, cause there is already so much out there about suicide and how it's selfish and how dare they. And it's like, mm -hmm. you have no idea. You have no idea what it's like to sit on this side mm -hmm. and feel like, feel like everything about you is wrong and broken mm -hmm. and feel like the world that you're, you're it's not selfish. You're like, yeah. I'm doing the world a favor. Yeah. This is to get me out of your hair and to make sure that you Cause I was like, Joe doesn't need to worry about taking care of me. My family doesn't need to worry about what's going on with me. Like all I want to do is to stop being in pain and stop causing other people pain. Yeah. Right. I know. So I wish I didn't say this, <laughs> but I know so many people who have been at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And I love, I read an article one time where she described it. Um, she was talking about the 9-11 towers and the people that were throwing themselves from the tower because it was just so hot. Like even though they were up that high in the tower, like no matter what they chose, it was, they were not coming out of it, right? But the fire just got so hot that without even thinking, you're jumping out of a window to escape the heat. And she was like, that is what she saw a suicide. It's just so hot. The pain is so intense that you're looking for any kind of relief possible. Yeah. And I was like, I'm so grateful for that article because it made me feel, it was one of the things that helped me see that I'm not crazy. Yeah. Right. I was just looking for an escape hatch. There's just so much pressure and so much intensity that it's just like, I just need something that will release that in my life. And we don't, we live in a society that doesn't promote or support any kind of mental health. Right? If you go get a therapy, if you go yeah. get a counselor, you're broken, you're weird. You're, we, we're like, oh, yeah, you should go get therapy, but we're going to make fun of you for it. Or we're going to call you crazy or we're going like, you know what I mean? Where we, totally. we support it. There's like this weird. Yeah. yeah. It's like, for example, coming out of the hospital. Um, every single year I have to get a letter from a counselor that I haven't needed to see in the last three years, but I still have to reach out to her and be like, I need a letter from you for my state that says I'm allowed to drive a car. 
you know, and it's like, it doesn't matter that I haven't needed therapy because I've been hospitalized once. I now have to go through that in my state mm. because I've been hospitalized. I was denied adoption. We tried to adopt internationally and I was denied adoption from every country because I have a history of being in the hospital and there's reasons why they do it. But we take these, we take those exceptions to the rule and then we go, that's everybody with mental health issues, right? So we have this really crazy double standard. I feel like we're talking out both sides of our mouth when it comes to mental health. Yes, we want you to get help, but then we're going to deny you all these things, call you crazy, and assume that you are a risk to society because you got it. So it's like, what are we supposed to do about that, yeah, right? And it's why people don't get help. Exactly. Exactly. Because I don't want to be that person. Yeah. Um, so how did you get better? How did you heal? So eventually what happened is I was able to keep that contract for a period of time. So I called him every single time, bless his heart. We ended up moving across the country. We lived right by where he worked. His work knew about me so that if he needed to leave right away, they were like, that's fine. Like leave, go take care of your wife. And we operated in that really difficult place for less than a year, actually, because we moved in 2009 and I was hospitalized by mid 2010. Like we moved fall of 2009. I was hospitalized by 2010 because there came a time after the trial. So they found him. I identified him and we went to trial, but because it was my word against his word, they decided not to prosecute. And after they decided not to prosecute, after everything I'd been through, it was, it, I'm grateful for that moment on the stand because suddenly I understood why more victims don't come forward because the way that and that's a whole nother conversation, how our justice system is really not helpful for victims. It's not, but just. Anyway, it's not just, it's not yeah. right. It's not. Um, but I went through that whole thing and I only to only to have them not prosecute him, which when we're talking about voices, like I felt like my voice was told one more time that it's not good enough. I felt like I was being told one more time that I need to stay silent one more time by the justice system that is supposed to be helping me, protecting me, caring for me, carrying out justice for me, that I wasn't enough. Go back to being quiet. Go back to being silent. You're not wanted, right? So I ended up um, that spring of 2010 coming to my husband and saying, I cannot keep my promise anymore. And there had been several other things that happened in between there where I had gotten the knife, I had gotten the rope, I had gotten the tie, I had, you know, I had, I had, I had, but I couldn't bring myself to do it. And then I would call him and be like, hey, by the way, I think you should know I just tried to slip my wrists, but I couldn't, I couldn't quite do it. And he's like, whoa, I'll be right home. Like, so he's, he's going to work every day thinking, I don't know if my wife's going to be alive when I get home. I'm waking up every day being like, what's the point? I don't even think I should be here. So we decided to commit me. One of the hardest choices I'd ever made because of the things we've, we've already talked about. And I was very blessed because on the East Coast, there is a um, facility out there that um, I think it's called the Psychiatric Institute of Washington, I think. They have a floor just for people with post-traumatic stress disorder. So I wasn't put in the same place um, with all of the disorders. This one was specific to PTSD and it was life changing. It was terrifying. It was like soul crushing that I had to be in that space. But at the same time, it was exactly what I needed to move out of the place that I had been. And the thing that was so fascinating to me as I went through that experience, A, I'm seeing other people like me who are struggling with this and going, oh my gosh, I'm not alone. And I'm seeing the spectrum all the way, like all the way on the lower end of someone who is someone diagnosed with PTSD because she has overbearing parents, right? But it, that's, that's what it did to her all the way to the other end of the spectrum of someone who had had so much violence and sexual assault in her life that she couldn't even function in society and you sit there and you look at all and every every shade in between and you realize that it doesn't matter 
what happened anymore. It doesn't matter how big, like I don't have to quantify it. I don't have to explain it. I don't have to approve that my PTSD situation is better or worse than anyone else's. It happened. This was the fallout. What am I going to do about it? Yeah. Right? And that was a beautiful place to be and to feel community from. Oh, Emily, the community in that hospital room with these women all sharing their stories and leaning in and supporting one another and being like, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. Right? Because part of you begins to believe that I did something. I had someone in my life say to me when it happened the second time, uh, maybe you didn't learn your lesson the first time. So God had to make it happen again. And I was like, what kind of, oh my God, I don't know what I can say in this podcast, but I'm like, what kind of effed up message is that? It's an adult podcast. You are welcome to. Okay. That's a fucked up message. That's what I want to say. That's really what I want to say because I'm like, that's, it's total bullshit to believe that anyone would be so awful that, oh, you've got to be raped multiple times. You've got to be assaulted multiple times. You've got to like, whatever's happening to you is your fault. It's like, hello, he had a choice. I didn't make him walk into my credit union. I didn't make him put a gun to me. I didn't make him threaten me. Anyway. But having a group of women around you that are reminding you that it's not your fault. And it was in that hospital. I had a therapist, I had a psychiatrist, I had a social worker. Like you're getting all these services. You're away from the world. You're away from everything where you can just be you and your thoughts and your healing. And at one point, my social worker, because I was struggling with some things happening in the group, what came up was that this idea about rules like these rules that I live by and this fear that's attached to the rules and the breaking of the rules or not breaking of the rules. Because in my home growing up, like I said, you break the rules that equal violence, Um, not just for you, but possibly for everybody. There were times when we all got it because one child was quote unquote acting out of control. Right. So then to teach us all a lesson, it's like line us all up and we all receive whatever punishment that is. So how many kids were there? We had five in my family. Oh, wow. Yeah. But there were four of us that were born in relative like proximity to each other. And then I have a little sister that was born like five years after me. So she was raised a little bit differently and never saw the violence that the four of us saw. So it was me and my three brothers. And were you the youngest? I was in the, I'm in the middle of the five. Mm -hmm. So I have two older brothers, myself, and then I have a a younger brother and a younger sister. Okay. So, um, but yeah, so that's, that's so confronted the, the healing around rules and authority. Exactly. It sounds like you were experiencing community in a way you had never before experienced no. as well. Yeah. Because they accepted you for exactly who you were. Mm-hmm. Right. There was no, there was no, you have to be a certain way. I mean, you had women from, like I said, the whole spectrum, there are people there with dissociative identity disorder, severe anxiety, like just the whole spectrum. And we all showed up and we all interacted and we all loved and we all took care of. And it didn't matter if you had 21 different personalities or just the one that you came with, Mm -hmm. right? Nobody was seen as what I felt. Nobody was seen as better or worse than Mm -hmm. nobody was like, we didn't ostracize anyone because, Oh wait, you have 21. Oh my gosh, you're crazy. It was like, no, we're all in this together. Yeah. How can we support one another? That was one of the first times I'd seen that without strings attached. Yeah. I've grown up in a community, but that community always had, yes, we'll help you, but you need to do these things in order to qualify for said help. You need to act in these ways in order for us to accept you. Right. And Mm -hmm. And we're doing it for your greater good. Like that was always the feeling that I got was like, I'm doing, I'm requiring these things of you because I just want to help you be a better person. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, you're requiring these things of me because you want me to be your version of yeah. a better person, yeah. not who I was. And so, yeah, you're right. That was the first time I experienced community in a way that was, I love, this is where I got my definition of belonging from. Oh yeah. The, um, I love belonging. <laughs> Talk about belonging. Yes. <laughs> the definition that I was gifted in the hospital by my counselor was, me invested in other people and those people invested in me and that it wasn't about fitting in. It wasn't about having a mold. It was just like, do I care for and I'm willing to take care of these people and do they care for and are willing to take care of me? And that changed everything for me because suddenly I saw my relationships differently. It was like, wait, 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 do we have a belonging relationship or do we have a contractual relationship? And I started letting go of contractual relationships 
it was like, if, if it's me giving all the giving and you're not invested to me in the same extent, we are not meant to be together. So with kindness and love, I release you back into whatever belonging you want to find. But my now, like from that point forward, it, that's how I judge every relationship is like, is belonging present? And are we belonging at the same level? Because if I'm a level 10 belonging and you're a level one belonging, we need to have a conversation or I need to adjust my belonging or we need to part ways with love and kindness, right? Yeah. Can you um, repeat what you said about the belonging? Me invested in other people and yeah. others invested in me. Yeah. Yeah. That was the, that's how he phrased it. You invested in others, others invested in you. That's how he said it. And I was like, that invested piece. Mm -hmm. That was the piece that made me go, wow, who is invested? Yeah. Who am I invested in? Yeah. And to just see the world through a different lens. Exactly. And see exactly. yourself through a different lens as well. Yes. And to see myself worthy of that investment mm -hmm. to go, oh my gosh, this is what I'm giving all of my relationships. Am I not worthy to receive the same? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, I'm grateful for the social worker who, she, so he gifted me that definition and she gifted me the ability to look at the world through my own set of rules. Mm -hmm. We went through all of the rules I grew up with as a child and we identified what wow. the rule was, how yeah. it made me feel. Like there's a whole breakdown that, yeah. that I did. And that's it. You can see the whole breakdown in my book, the path to courage. After that, it was so powerful because I came back, we talked about it and she says, okay, turn to a, turn to a clean page. So I turn over and she goes, and at the top, I want you to write the rules I want to live by. And I was like, wait, what? I get to live by my own set of rules. Like she gave me permission. I had no idea that was even an option. Yeah. Right. And she's like, yes. And so I still have the paper over here it, underneath that title. Number one live by your own set of rules. That was my number one rule. And then I have a few more about love and belonging and stuff, but I'm like, that's the one I come to again and again and again. When I start to find myself slipping back into a place that I'm living by others' expectations, I have to go back to what's my number one rule. Number one rule is I live by my set of rules. So right? I have a question. Yes. What's your tell for when you're slipping back into living by others expectations or external expectations like do you have a physical manifestation do, like I notice I get I can tell I get super anxious yes and I can I feel kind of jittery like I've had mm, six cups of coffee or something you know, like I'm like, oh, more 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 and nothing's ever good enough I find so verbally I find myself I start saying should a lot I should do this. I should do that. Like when I find myself, I call it shooting on yourself. When I find myself <laughs> shooting on myself, yeah. that's, that's a verbal indicator that I'm out of alignment with who I am because I don't act out of should I act out of desire. Yeah. Right. Um, another thing is I start feeling a lot of dissonance in my chest, just like discomfort. And sometimes it even slips down into my belly while I feel physically sick to my stomach. Mm -hmm. When I start feeling that dissonance, sometimes it takes a little bit, but when I start feeling that pull, right, of like, oh, it doesn't feel good, not that I feel like we should all feel good all the time. I love tension. Tension is required for growth. Resistance is powerful in helping me expand and to build the muscles to do even bigger things. So it's not the, the pull of tension or resistance. It's that pull of alignment where I start to feel like I'm not doing things you kind of start to feel crooked. My back hurts. Mm. Like things aren't computing. They're not making sense. And when I catch myself, usually it's like, oh my gosh, I'm trying to fill someone else's expectations. I'm trying to impress them. I'm trying to live for them. I'm trying to, you know, make them happy with me. And that's when I'm like, that's not my job. I don't control your happiness. I can't control anyone's happiness. If you don't like what I'm doing, don't hang around. Mm -hmm. Right, because I'm doing good things in the world. And if that makes you uncomfortable, then obviously you should find a, a different place to be, yeah. and that's okay. Blessings to you as you go on that way. Absolutely, but that's that's how it shows up for me. And so, yeah, if and the 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 more you practice, I love that you bring that up because the more we practice understanding our personal tell, yeah, the faster we can notice and we can make the adjustment to go. Oh my gosh, what expectation am I living by? Because I learned as I came out of the hospital that's what really put me in the hospital. Mm -hmm. Like a few like months to a year later, I was looking back and I was like, it wasn't that that guy put a gun to me and threatened to kill me that led 
to me wanting to remove myself from the planet. What it actually was, was that because he did those things, I couldn't keep up pretenses anymore. I couldn't hold the mask. I couldn't meet their expectations. And because I could no longer do that and check all of their lists and be like, oh, Deb's the go-to girl, because I couldn't do that anymore, that's why I wanted to kill myself. That's why I wanted to remove myself from the planet. If I couldn't be who they said I had to be in order to be a good person and worth loving and worth God saying yes, because that question on the credit union floor wasn't just, was my life good enough? It was, was my life good enough for God? Mm. And nobody should feel that in that moment that they might pass. Mm. And that's what led me to wanting to remove myself from wanting to kill myself because I couldn't be what I thought I had to be for God to love me. And so I was like, what's the point of me? Let's just be done. And after that experience in the hospital and owning who I was or, or starting that process of owning who I was and starting that process of saying, these are my rules, that glass that had been sitting inside of me all that time shattered and fell to the floor and it was terrifying and it cuts on the way down and it hurts. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's like opening you up to a world that you never experienced before. And it gave me the opportunity to grab each piece of glass and hold it up to the light and go, how do I feel about this piece? And do I want it? And some things I kept and I put in a little pot to create a stained glass window from and some things I threw away and others I had to pick up and put them down. And I've done that several times with some pieces where I'm like, I just don't know yet. So this goes in the I don't know yet pile, mm -hmm. but I'm okay leaving it there until I figure it out. But it made all the difference for me in my life because now, like before I was living, there's some rules that I kept. It's very funny because I don't, I don't practice my religion anymore. But people who interact with me from that religion is like, oh, you make a great so-and-so, you know, and it, and it makes me laugh because there's this assumption that when you leave our church, you become this heathen, you know, pot smoking, alcohol drinking, like swinger that like destroys your family. That's kind of the weird perception. And so it's really surprised people that I didn't go there because I was willing in that moment to just hold and look at each of the pieces of glass instead of just throwing everything away. Yeah. I was like, no, I really love my relationship with my husband. I want to keep that. I really love being clear of mind and being in control of my body. I'm going to keep that. So you know what I mean? Yep. Um, but it's, it's really fascinated the people watching me because they don't understand how I can live such a good life and not still subscribe to some of the beliefs that they do. And I'm just like, if you love it and it helps you be a better person, all power to you. I, I support you in saying because leaving anything, whether it's religion, family, culture, letting go of those beliefs, it's hard yeah. and it's painful. Yeah. But what I know is that as we make that choice, because, because it aligns with us, because we need to be heard, we need to be free to live as who we really are on the inside, as that little girl climbing up on the wall and singing and dancing for the people. As we embrace that, everything that I've received and all the pain that I've gone through to get to this moment in time has been absolutely 100% worth it because I cannot, I don't even want to imagine my life as the old me that I used to be. Like I can see that trajectory and I used Should to be. grieve. Yeah. yeah. Like I'm like, I love who I am. I used to wake up in the morning and be like, does God love me? Am I good enough today? And I wake up in the morning, like, I don't even have to ask that question. Yeah. Of course God loves me. He loves the path that I'm on. He yeah. loves that I'm helping the world. And he supports me a hundred million percent. He, she I actually have a very broader view of source now. Yeah. So anyway, I just, I love that about myself. And I'm like, if that's what other people want, I'm like, come on over. I'm not going to force anyone over here. But if you're already kind of waking up and going, there's something different. There's something more out there. I'm like, hell yes. Let me show you. Come on over. There's a whole journey to go on together yeah. where you can be supported in that process instead of thinking that you have to walk through it alone because too many of us are walking alone. Totally. So how does that inform, because you've coached writers Mm -hmm. You now coach, what do you, you call them? Sacred rebels. Is that right? Yes. That's what I call them. My sacred okay. rebels. So how, how does your experience and healing path from, you know, working through and surviving suicide and how does that inform how you coach now? It goes back to claiming who we are at the very, very core 
fiction writing was something I turned to during my healing process. And that just, it, I, I would call it one of the reasons that I feel so empowered now is because fiction was writing was something that I could do even when I couldn't do anything at all. Um, but one thing that I saw in the fiction world was so many, and I see this in artists in general, because I think for too many generations, we've been told that what we do is not real. Oh, you fiction writers? Fiction writers, artists, dancers, performers, like anyone in the creative side of things, we're told that when are you going to get a real job? Or, you know, our families, our friends are like, are you sure you want to do that? I don't know that there's money in that. So we're told for so long that it's not real. It's a fake. You're not really contributing. Why don't you become a doctor, teacher, lawyer, mm -hmm. you know, that we put all this pressure on that I feel like artists really struggle to own their power, to, to recognize that they have an ability to change the world that nobody else does because we reflect truth back to the world mm -hmm. in a way that feels safe for others to receive. If I were just to stand up here and be like, you're doing all these things wrong, go fix it. Mm -hmm. People respond to that. Like we start, we pull back and we're like, Ooh, don't show me that. I don't want to see, I don't want to see the ugly inside of me. That doesn't feel good. But look what happens when we introduce a character through a book that people can relate to, that we can grow from. Look at, I mean, let's just look at, um, Harry Potter for a moment, right? All the truths that Dumbledore was able to teach me and the people across this planet because he was teaching Harry and it wasn't scary because we're like, Oh, Harry's learning this truth. But at the same time, I'm picking up on this truth yeah. and I'm changing the way that I think and feel because Dumbledore taught it to some boy in a book who doesn't really exist. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That is power. It and is. Power. Rowling has changed the physical, emotional and mental landscape of the world through a story. Yeah. Do you and know who else I love? Who? Shonda Rhimes. Oh, who, what does she write? Oh my gosh. Shonda Rhimes? Yeah, I don't think I know her. Oh, sweetie, you got to know Shonda Rhimes. She, I'm writing this down. She, she's the author of Grey's Anatomy, of, oh, okay. of uh, Scandal, of How to Get Away with Murder. Um, she wrote a book called The Year of Yes, which I highly, highly recommend. Um, Oh, all of her work. Like that is how we change the world is with our imagination and the stories mm. we tell and the characters we create. Yes. Um, because like you were saying, like it gives you permission to feel, to have empathy. Yes. Explore parts of yourself through fiction because it's safer. Yeah. Yeah. So... And people do it through art when they show up to look at paintings. We yeah. do it when we go to the theater and we allow, we allow the person on the stage to emote. But at the same time, there's that sacred connection that's created between the two of us as we all choose in to this world on the stage together. Like mm -hmm. it's so powerful. Yeah. Creation power is so fucking powerful. Yeah. And yet our world has said that I doesn't mean, mean anything. It's not real. Yeah, it's not real. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, oh no, holy hell, yes, it is real. Yeah. I got into teaching fiction writers because I'm like, if you guys just knew, I was reading all of these stories from friends that I made in the, in the fiction world. And oh, Emily, these stories, like this one writer I can think of, like she has changed my world multiple times through the different stories I've read of hers. Not one has gone to publishing because she is afraid. She's afraid of showing up in the world as herself. And I was like, this can't happen. Like these stories have to be on the market. They have to be out there. They have to be changing the world. And you're not taking a step forward because you are afraid, because you feel like you're not good enough, because you're worried about success and failure equally. And we're worried about people judging us. And I'm like, and through that whole experience of going through the hospital, of owning my quote unquote insanity, I'd had, I'd had family members tell me that I was crazy, that I was insane, that like, like people that are supposed to hold you and love you through the process are rejecting you. But going through that gave me strength to turn around and say, you don't need any of that. Yeah. The one person that you need to believe in you is you. Yep. That's the only person because the more you believe in you and you've seen this on my website and it's a quote from someone else. I cannot find who said this to begin with, but I use it because I love it. My job is to help you believe in yourself so strongly that the world can't help but believe in you too. Because when we believe in self, anything is possible.
And I honestly, truly believe that the impact that we're going to create and one of my superpowers. So I'm very intuitive. I'm an empath. I learned how to control that through this process. I learned about energy through this process, like things before that my family would have been like, Oh, that's Satan. I'm just like, whatevs. I'm open to anything, right? I'm open to anything that comes in here. And if it resonates as truth and adds to the uplifting of the planet, I'm all in, right? If it makes this planet a better place, yes, hell yes, let's do it. Whatever that is, right? Go ahead. Go ahead. I, learned, <laughs> I learned all this stuff. And, but I've loved it because it's opened up my gifts. And one of my gifts that it's opened up is that when I interact with people, when they talk about what they're really, really passionate about, what I call their soul song, that call from deep down in your belly that says, this is what you're supposed to do. When I talk to them, I don't just feel the possibility of what they're talking about. I feel the inevitability in my mind. I see the future. I stand in the future of that happening of the impact that that will make. Like when you talk about your podcast Mm -hmm. and I sit and I interact with you, Mm -hmm. I feel the world as it will be when this continues to spiral out and touch more and more lives. And it is amazing and it is great. And I feel all of that in one moment. Mm -hmm. And it's like, if I can feel that this is the truth that's coming. So many of us talk about the world and the bad and the ugly and what's happening. and, And we have to be aware of that. But I feel like we're all trying to usher in this type of quote unquote second coming with wars and like, oh, look at the doom and gloom and signs of the time. It's going to be the end. And I'm like, yes, there is an end coming, but it doesn't have to come through violence and hate. Yeah. There is another option. And I feel it every time I talk to someone who is leaning into their soul song. And I'm like, if all of us, if all of us leaned into that voice inside of us that was lighting up us and we allowed that to light up the world, this would be a different planet. Word. Right? Yes. Like an end ushered in, not from hate, but from love, from kindness, from living our authentic truths. Mm -hmm. And that is the power I see in Sacred Rebels. And that's why I shifted from just talking to fiction writers, because I'm like, some fiction writers, all they want is just to publish a book. And that's great. And that's beautiful for them. And I support them in that. But I want to talk to the fiction writers who are ready to change the world. And I want to talk to the artists and the creative visionaries and those people out there who are like, I'm supposed to do something a lot bigger, but I'm really afraid and I don't know why I'm the one or if I'm the one and I'm just like, hell yes, you're the one, let's go. So I have a question. Yes. Okay. What is your, I asked this, I love asking this question because like everything you just said, when we get the power of our desires and of our visions if it's in a positive, holistic, encompassing, healing way, I think that is one of the most powerful gifts we as humans have. Amen. And what is your prayer? What is your wish for our country, for the planet? I would say kindness and inclusivity, right? Let's just start there. That is my wish, but I think that wish comes to pass when people really understand who they are and the gifts they have to offer to the world, even the people filled with hate right now, if they really pulled back the curtain on the beliefs that they were raised with, on the experiences that they've had, and they were to look at honestly at the, at the self that's sitting inside them. And I won't say this 100% for everybody because I've met some really nasty people where I'm like, you are just, you are just evil and that is a problem and you need to be taken care of. Um, but most people, especially those in ignorance and those in some levels of hate, when we can look past the behaviors and the words that they're saying, what we see is an individual inside of them that mostly is looking for belonging themselves, that is mostly looking to know that they matter in this world and that they have something greater to offer. And if we had more people leaning into that, less afraid of comparing outside of them and saying, oh my gosh, they're doing this, which means I can't do this, which we do so often, such a weird human dynamic, that their truth means I can't have my truth. If we got rid of that and just chose to be 100% tapped into our humanity and allow that kindness and inclusivity to reach out into the world around us. I'm just like, it would change everything. But it starts, for those that can't reach that deep down inside of them, I'm like, can you just be kind? Like, I love the Dalai Lama who's like, my religion is simple, my religion is kindness. I was like, yes, amen and amen. 
let's choose kindness first mm-hmm. and let's get there. And then let's dig deeper because there's someone inside you that longs to be free of the masks and the hate and the beliefs that have told you for so long that somehow you're not enough. And so you take that vitriol and you spew it out here, letting those people know that they're not enough. That's just fear talking. That's doubt talking. Mm-hmm. Let's move that because I know what's inside of you is greater than how you're showing up in the world. So that's what I want for our country. I want us to choose into our greatness instead of choosing into our fear. Yeah. Fear will always be there, but we don't have to choose it. Yeah. It doesn't have to drive, right? <laughs> yeah. And when we can let go of that, I believe that's where the magic will happen. It's just like that's where that's where things will show up and powers will unfold that I think will freak all of us out in a good way. Yeah. Because there's more power when you say that, when you said what you said earlier, that's the real power. I agree with you. I believe that we as humans are, are creators in this life. Yeah. We create a reality. Yeah. We form, like not just like, oh, I wish it's going to happen, but we literally form the fabric of our reality. We yeah. have that power. And if more people tapped into that, I mean, can you imagine like a lot of the baddies are tapping into that to do really terrible things. How about more of us who love the world? How about we tap into it and create really delicious things? And in that, I think we'll see the miracles happen. That's what I look forward to. Amen. Mm -hmm. I love your passion for this. I just, humans are amazing. I think we're greater than we give ourselves credit for. And I want, what I really want, it goes back to um, a journal entry, December 24th, 2012, I believe, right before Christmas, lamenting once again that I don't have children, right? Because um, one of my old stories was that uh, in order to have value, I needed to have kids. That was the, the culture I was raised in. And I was once again contemplating suicide. You know, I'd already been through the hospital. I knew my tools, but I was thinking about, Again, suicide. Like, what would that be like for Joe to wake up in the morning, Christmas morning, and I'm not here, and all of these things? And then I remember part of the entry it says, But I don't really want death. What I want is to truly live. What I want is to reach out into the world and to help this person and this person and this person to know that they matter, to know that their voice matters, and that if they will simply have the courage to choose in to this big dream that they have sitting inside them, that the world will never be the same. Because that's what I saw in my own life. As I chose me and as I chose this, this call inside me, this flame, it changed everything about my world. And it didn't make it perfect, but it did lead to an environment that said, I love getting up every single day. I love everything that's happening. I can handle anything that comes my way. And that's just what I want for people. I want them to know that they matter, that whatever their little person looked like, whether it was jumping on the wall, singing and dancing, loving the world, like super tackle squishy hugs, like whatever their person was, even if their person was stillness and understanding order in the chaos and just being the peace and harmony that this world needs, that whatever that was for them, that they have the right and the ability to be that now, that it's not too late. We get to be, we get to be us now in this moment, not someday. Is there anything else you want to add? I would just say to anyone out there, listen to the magic that's sitting inside you, that you are made of starlight and power, and that no matter what has happened in your life, what choices you've made, what choices others have made against you, that you are not a culmination of those things that have happened by or to you. You are made of the same things that make up our galaxy. And today can always be the day to choose something different. Listen to your magic, find your North Star, and let that guide you, because it's time. It's time to let go of the rules. Brene Brown says, I'm going to paraphrase the most courageous thing we can do is to own our story and to have compassion for ourselves through that. And so I just honor that in you. And I thank you for sharing that. And ah, listeners get the book, (laughs) the path, the path to courage. (laughs) 
Yeah. It's on Amazon and there'll be a link. Thank you, my dear. Thank you for having me. This is so special. I love the work that you do in the world. Thank you so much for listening. Again, that was Debbie Burns. You can learn more about her programs at debbieburns.me and go to amazon.com to get her book, The Path to Courage. If you have a story to share or an experience that helped you find your voice, I'd love to hear your story. Please go to she'sher.com and click on the button that says share my story and sign up for our newsletter for updates on the latest releases and opportunities to connect. Tune into the next episode, more inspiration, wisdom, and insight is on the way. Until next time, standing in our collective liberation, be well.